Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. The audience is drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. The Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, will delve into this topic. I'm Nancy Karabjanian. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Now we join our A Matter of Facts podcast host, Nancy Karabjanian. Thanks for joining us again on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm Tom Burns sitting in for Nancy Karabjanian. Artificial intelligence is a term we're all pretty familiar with, but how much do we really know about it beyond the way it's portrayed in pop culture and science fiction through movies, TV shows, books, and the like? What is the state of AI right now, and where is it headed? What does AI mean to you and me, both now and in the future? These questions have both practical and philosophical implications, and we want to try to sort through some of that in this episode. And to do that, we welcome Dr. Susan Schneider, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Cognitive Science at the University of Connecticut and Director of the AI Mind and Society Group there. She's a distinguished scholar at the Library of Congress and recipient of the National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Award. She's also author of the book, The Language of Thoughts, A New Philosophical Direction, and has a new book coming this fall, Artificial You, AI and the Future of Your Mind. Dr. Susan Schneider, thanks for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. So let's start here. How far apart are the depiction of AI that the average person may be familiar with and the reality of AI today? Is, is it a big gap? Yes and no. So people tend to think of AI in terms of robots. So they're thinking of androids that they may see on TV, like Sophia, for example, with Hanson Robotics. And they may be thinking that the capacities of these androids from an intellectual standpoint is quite impressive. Um, But in reality, the physical androids are actually just being developed as physical duplicates of humans, and they still require an inbuilt artificial intelligence component. So I think the public tends to get science fiction-like very quickly because of these examples of AI. But in reality, AI is, in a sense, all around us. Um, I mean, it's there when you're doing a Google search. Um, It's there beating the world Go and Jeopardy champions. It may not be what people think of, though, when they're thinking of artificial intelligence. Are there some some common misconceptions about AI kind of beyond that thinking it's an Android piece of it? Yeah, there are a lot of common misconceptions. I mean, um, so I think one thing to call people's attention to attention to is what the historian Michael Best calls the Jetsons fallacy. Mm-hmm. So um, when you think of the future, you probably think of 
a future where robots are serving us and we have a smart house all wired in via the Internet of Things. But people don't realize that AI will actually be inside the brain. So it will be potentially changing our ability to think. We may have things like mobile Internet connections hooking up directly to the brain. Uh, we may have brain chips devoted to enhancing our abilities to, say, calculate or remember. So these are the kind of things people aren't necessarily seeing as being potentially in their future and their children's future, but it's definitely work in progress. Um, so Google and Facebook have both been developing these technologies, as has the military and a company called Kernel. Just hearing that, I realize there's a lot to unpack when you talk about artificial intelligence and, and probably not enough time to do it justice within one episode of this podcast. So let me take this direction with it and say, what are some of the key points about AI that you try to drive home with people regarding where it is now, where it's headed, and, and its implications? I know you kind of alluded to some of it there. Are, are there some things when, when you know people say, well, well, tell me what I need to know about AI right now, whereas I'm starting to maybe try to learn about it? What are kind of the key things that you emphasize with people? Well, I hope people bear in mind that AI regulation is currently the Wild West. So we've seen some amazing innovations, and we're not quite ready to handle them socially. An example of this is um, the scandals with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, in which our data was sold and the data of our contacts. So, you know, it's a failure of AI regulation that worries me primarily. So that's one issue. Another issue is um, because of the rapid-fire innovations in the domain of AI, um, most employment experts agree that there will probably be massive technological unemployment or underemployment caused by artificial intelligence. So in other words, we humans will be outmoded. This, in turn, could put a lot of pressure on humans to enhance their own brains as a result. So that's a lot to think about. Um, <laughs> what do we do? Um, you know, when virtually all professions could be outmoded. I mean, if you think about just self-driving cars, for example. Right. Um, in 10 years, that could mean that there is not a need for drivers any longer. Of course, you can debate the time frame. But I think one-eighth of all employed people are actually in driving professions right now. So that's sort of mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. And there already, um, there's already work on AI attorneys, which may be a good thing, right? <laughs> Let's get rid of them. No, I'm just kidding. My husband's an attorney. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it's going to apply across the board to well, they, professors like myself. Well, even journalists. I mean, I know there are, there are AI programs that, that can that they have, like, writing sports stories that can take, like, the basic information of, like, a basketball game from the box score and, and are trying to, like, write stories for, instead of a sports writer. Absolutely. Um, I think we're all up for replacement. <laughs> and, you know, that raises, you know, back to government reaction. Um, you know, it raises issues of maybe there should be something like a universal basic income where everybody receives a minimum amount. Um, 
and that, you know, it's politically very controversial, but it would seem like both sides of the aisle will have to do something about massive technological unemployment. I mean, they won't be able to ignore it. And I think we should begin the discussion now because the data is strongly supportive of technological unemployment. And similarly, you know, if you have a child that is entering college, I mean, it's important that people think about what areas will not be affected by AI, um, you know, over the next 10 years, and they plan accordingly. I mean, it's hard to suggest anything besides a good, broad-ranging education. You mentioned the the regulation piece and the government role, and, and President Trump signed an executive order last month uh, asking the federal government's agencies to dedicate more resources, investment in the research, promotion, training in artificial intelligence. Uh, kind of a broad statement, no specific funding attached. Is that is that the kind of start we need, or do you need something a little bit more specific than that? You know, how how do you see that as you know a, a starting point for maybe addressing what you were just talking about? I think it's a good starting point. Um, and obviously there will be funds allocated and decisions made about how to do so. Um, we absolutely have to start preparing for AI being at the very center of our future, and we also need to think of strategic issues. Um, you know, our relation with China, um, you know, maintaining um, strength in artificial intelligence, very important. I want to talk a little bit about reporting on, on AI. And, and I can say, as a news director, reporting on science and technology can be very difficult for many news organizations, trying to translate complex science ideas into digestible, understandable news stories. Uh, from your standpoint, how do journalists do reporting on AI? Are they, are they helping or hindering people's understanding at this point? Well, I love working with journalists. Um, I've had some amazing experiences. Um, so, and I, I actually confess I write pieces for Scientific American and the New York Times. So <laughs> I'm sort of, you know, a journalist myself, In that realm, I suppose. Yes. Um, so the, I do see cultural misunderstandings filtering into science journalism for sure. Um, so one thing that disturbs me is a sort of techno-optimism and enthusiasm for anything tech gurus say. So, you know, if Elon Musk says it, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's not that, I mean, he's a very smart man, and hey, you know, I love my Tesla. <laughs> Thank you, Elon, right? But, I mean, look, I mean, the future of the mind, for example, or this, you know, we're talking about Artificial intelligence, we're talking about putting it in the head. We're talking about creating um, robots that, you know, we may think of as people. And, you know, these are actually philosophical issues, too. And it's not something that businesses like Google and Facebook should be uh, regarded by the public as being authorities about. I mean, you know, I think that these are social decisions. Um, so, for example, to go back to the idea of how AI is moving inside the head, that's been something that Musk has been a big proponent of. He thinks that we need to enhance our own brains. And he started a company, Neuralink, 
to develop technology to enhance the brain. And he says we need to do this to keep up with AI and avoid technological unemployment. So we're tinkering with the mind, and this really involves the future of our children and grandchildren, you know, subsequent generations, maybe even us. So just because a tech leader says it doesn't mean, you know, it's inevitable. I think we just need to have cultural dialogue on these issues. I think the media is wonderful in inspiring cultural dialogue. Well, you've kind of taken me right where I wanted to go, because one of the things I wanted to talk about was the fact that, that you know, AI can be even more complicated for journalists to cover and, and people in general to discuss, because as you mentioned, it has this philosophical element to it, the consciousness, self-awareness. Um, you, you write and lecture a lot on, on AI becoming conscious, and your upcoming book, Artificial You, is described as a sober-minded philosophical exploration of what AI can and cannot achieve. With all that in mind, tell us a little bit more about, about what this may look like, what we should be keeping in mind as we look toward that future and what its implications are. Yeah. Um, so part of the book is on this idea of enhancing the brain through AI technology and asking whether we could truly merge with AI. And I urge that we have to consider the underlying philosophical issues about what we are, what is the mind. Because otherwise, we are enhancing the brain in radical ways. And who knows? I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> we may not even be the same person in any way, shape, or form. Like, how do we want to move forward with altering our own minds? Um, relatedly, the book talks about the possibility of machine consciousness. Mm -hmm. And there, I think there are a lot of cultural misunderstandings. I mean, I think there's a tendency, again, to go back to this kind of techno-optimist perspective that you see in the media and in the public, especially the techie public, this idea that if it's a sophisticated artificial intelligence, if it, you know, is what we might call artificial general intelligence, which is something that we haven't developed yet, but I think we're inching, you know, with every passing year, every passing decade, we, I believe, are moving closer in the direction of general intelligences that have intellectual capacities that rival at least non-human animals and maybe eventually human intelligence. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we develop these things, there's this assumption that these creatures will be conscious, that it will feel like something to be them. And that's because in the biological world, the sophisticated cognizers are conscious. Um, but I urge that we have to be very careful making that kind of assumption for a variety of reasons. Um, we just don't know whether other substrates will even be cap capable of having experience. I mean, just because something is a sophisticated information processing device, it doesn't follow that it feels like anything to be it. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, these things, they will look human in many cases. So that's going to be unnerving for the public. I mean, if you look at, for example, the kind of work that's already going on in Japan um, to create androids to take care of the elderly, these creatures from a distance look extremely human. And I wonder if this is kind of a, an interesting part of the conversation as well, and, and the fact that it, is this part of the conversation sometimes a barrier to people understanding AI and its implications because it is so complicated and it is 
it, it delves into some really basic philosophical issues that, that some people are just like, ah, I just don't want to, that, that's too deep. I can't think yeah. about that. Is, that. is that a barrier to people kind of engaging on this topic? Because it just seems like, wow, that is just way too much for me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why philosophers in particular have to write for the public and engage with the public and use examples that hammer points home. Um, because we have a moral obligation to do that. If we just write for each other in a technical vocabulary, then the public and the policymakers may not understand these crucial issues involving the self and the mind uh, that impact emerging technologies. In addition to your upcoming book that we've talked about, uh, Artificial You, uh, you also have a National Endowment for the Humanities Project, Future Minds, Artificial Intelligence, Brain Enhancement, and the Nature of Self. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about what that's all about? Oh, yeah. Um, so I just retitled the book. It was going to be called Future Minds. Okay, so but, this is... um, the next book, the one that I'm writing um, right now at the Library of Congress, in fact, I'm their distinguished scholar. I'm having a great time here I'm calling you from the library right now. Um, is, it's called uh, The Future of Intelligence. Okay. And so what it's doing is talking about whether we humans could enhance our brains and maintain parity with artificial intelligence and where we will stand in relation to other creatures in the universe should they exist. So part of my work is with NASA, um, where I think about the evolution of intelligence in the universe and the possible types of life we might encounter. So what I'm doing is really pulling it all together, talking about the space of possible intelligences and seeing where we humans will fare and what we can in how how great how much we can enhance the brain. And I do think we might have limitations or design ceilings on our own enhancement. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're looking to, um, you know, transfer all of your mental capacities to the cloud or upload your brain or something like that to avoid death, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to go back to techno-optimism, right, I think that's taking it too far. Um, Not sure that it would be feasible. And you've also talked a little bit about what what type of uh, intelligence we could find if we kind of reach out into space seeking uh, other intelligent life, and, and that we may not encounter biological intelligent life, but this kind of artificial, synthetic intelligent life. Yes. So I love that stuff. I love thinking about it. Um, so here's one thing I always tell people. I'm not suggesting that the first life we find, should we find life, would be intelligence. I think it will be microbial. Mm-hmm. And there'll be far, you know, there'll be more cases of that in the universe than intelligent life. But what I was looking at, my project for NASA, was what would the most intelligent beings in the universe be? And my answer was the most intelligent ones will have enhanced themselves. They will be synthetic, and they probably won't be biological anymore, because other substrates like silicon, 
for example, they can outperform us and they're far more durable. And similarly, in the context of space flight, I mean, it's a big universe. (laughs) (laughs) It's an eight-year round trip just for information to flow here from here to Alpha Centauri and back, which is the nearest star. So think about the vast interstellar distances and how are we going to send a biological entity? So similarly, if we encounter something that's, you know, traveling here, it's probably going to be synthetic. It's a, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. It's a trip. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and the implications for like what that means with how they would interact perhaps potentially with us as biological life forms is, is a fascinating, fascinating possibility as well. Right. Exactly. Like what are we searching for when we're searching for intelligence in the universe? I mean, it's very difficult to think about this because a civilization could be something like 50,000 years older than us, and it will be super intelligent relative to us. Mm-hmm. And we haven't enhanced our own brains yet in any radical ways. We don't have super intelligent artificial intelligence yet, so how do we know what we're looking for? My own suspicion is if other creatures are out there that are at that level of intelligence, we won't really know how to look for them until we turn on our superintelligence systems, either in the form of AIs or in the form of enhanced humans. Fascinating. If people are interested in delving deeper into this topic, what resources do you recommend that they, they go to? Well, I had a piece in Nautilus on this that's very accessible. I like writing um, for you know science publications that are available to the public. Um, And then the book has a chapter on this topic, a book called Artificial You. Mm -hmm. Um, If you turn to the season finale of uh, Star Talk, which is the Neil deGrasse Tyson show, I think it's airing in a couple months. Um, I'm starring in it together with Teddy from Westworld. (laughs) And so we're talking about all this there. And it turned out to be a very accessible episode Um, I also strongly recommend reading Martin Rees, The Royal Astronomer. All his books are just so wonderful. Um, Max Tegmark has a really cool book called, I believe it's called Life 3.0, on a lot of these questions. And then the philosopher David Chalmers, wonderfully accessible. Uh, I strongly recommend reading his books as well. And we'd like to end this podcast uh, by asking each of our guests uh, the same question, which is, where do you get your news on a daily basis, your everyday news? What are your favorite news sources? Well, I love NPR. (laughs) I love it. I really enjoy the New York Times. Um, For AI stuff, I like Wired. Um, All kinds of places. I mean, I appreciate Nautilus. Um, You know, I appreciate quality science journalism. Well, Dr. Susan Schneider, we really appreciate your time. Uh, Dr. Susan Schneider is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Cognitive Science at the University of Connecticut and also currently a Distinguished Scholar at the Library of Congress, where she is speaking to us from today. Dr. Schneider, thank you so much for being with us on the Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you for having me.
The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.